Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's a new year, and perhaps in a flurry of decluttering, you find yourself contemplating the objects that have accumulated around you. Not the fancy stuff, but the things that you've kept around as your own personal archive, the stuff of your life. An old typewriter, a child's clay handprint, fabric buttons made by your grandmother. This morning, we'll talk with artists and writers about the things we keep why we keep them, and we'll hear from you what object tells an important story about your life, your family, or your history. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The pair of scissors I want to tell you about are pretty striking. They're sturdy and big, like a chef's knife. And the bronze bronze handle is rough-hewn, extending out to these thick, rusting blades. The scissors haven't really cut anything for years, and yet they have a place of pride in our home. My memory was that my wife and I got them in Istanbul on our last trip before we had kids. And looking at them, I'd be instantly transported back to the shop where we got them, some impossibly hip place tucked into an ancient building, There's something about them and the process of finding them, the way we could just wander around some new place with no particular schedule, no baby waiting at home, no clock ticking on the adventure. I think the caregivers out there know what I'm talking about. And these scissors represent a whole life that we had and will one day have again, we hope. That's what I see when I look at these big old scissors. But as I related this story and this feeling to my spouse, it turned out that my memory of them wasn't right. There was a pair of gold-handled scissors in Istanbul. I have the photo to prove it, but those were different. These we picked up some other time, and my mind fused them into the Istanbul scissors. The story isn't of the object, but it's one that I planted in it. Does that make it any less meaningful? I'm not sure. (laughs) Our first guest, Liz Hernandez, is an artist in Oakland, originally from Mexico City. Her new project is a 12-month residency at SF State called The Office for the Study of the ordinary. And as she describes it, in our urgency to capture history, we often gravitate towards the extraordinary. Front page stories, scandals, trauma, and crisis. Yet true understanding requires acknowledging the significance of the ordinary, the mundane. How can we articulate the common things, unearth and liberate them from obscurity, give them meaning, and enable them to convey the essence of who we are? Welcome to the show, Liz. Hi, thank you so much for having me. 
As we explore this idea, we've got an august panel of folks who've been thinking through these issues, too, in their own books and projects. We're joined by Jessica Oreck, founder of the Office of Collecting and Design. Oreck is an artist and a stop-motion animator whose collection of objects form the foundation of this museum, which is the Office of Collecting and Design. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. So excited to be here. We also have Naomi Wax, who's co-author of a book called What We Keep, a collection of stories about objects that have meaning and memory for their owners. Welcome, Naomi. Thanks. We, of course, this is really a great show for you to write in and tell us about an object that's really meaningful to you. Just one object, one story. Try emailing us forum at kqed.org. It's like a little writing prompt for everyone out there. Um, Liz Hernandez, what fascinates you about the ordinary objects of our lives? So many things. I, you know, I'm a person who collects. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're expensive objects. Um, they're usually tiny things. Um, and, you know, as a collector... I spend a lot of time thinking why I gravitate towards certain things. Mm -hmm. And um, over time, I realized that, you know, we want to be surrounded by objects that speak to us, but also about us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, objects are not static. They um, can tell stories. They can spark a memory like what you mm -hmm. described about these scissors. Um, but they also relate us to others. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I, I think I gravitate towards that kind of object that keeps me connected to these places, these memories and people mm -hmm. that I cherish. And your art has used and incorporated objects in the past, too, like people in your in your family and other things. Yeah, that is correct. Um, I think it comes from that desire. You know, I'm far away from home and I miss the place that I used to call home and my family. So I started to um, fill my everyday with these objects that allow me to feel close to them, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there one you want to tell us about or one, one class of objects? Oof, there, there's just so many. <laughs> um, you know, I am interested in those objects that go really unnoticed because we use them all the time. Like, um, for example, there is this uh, molcajete, which mm -hmm. is just... Um, volcanic stone a device um, that you used to make guacamole or salsa um, but my mom gave it to me it's shaped as a little pig um, <laughs> and I just keep it in the kitchen although I usually just use the um, the blender mm -hmm. because it's just so hard and you know it's like a your hand gets day. tired <laughs> yeah. you know yeah um, um, you also have an object here with us, which relates to your, your current project at SF State, which is a stamp, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so you actually like making, and like this is the kind of stamp where when you press down on it, it goes like, <laughs> ka-chunk. Yes. Um, you also seem to like the the mechanism of even these kind of uh, things you can make. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just I, I'm a big fan of these um, devices, like ephemera, just letters, little things like that. Um, and with this project, I, you know, a big underlying idea is this um, concept of validation, of permission, of something that's official, you know, and creating an office for the study of ordinary, mundane, boring things <laughs> almost required some big institution's permission because it seems so little. So by creating this um, stamp that's big and it's like it has a 
custom logo and you know there's branding it just feels so important and it's this device that validates the yeah. desire it'll be like there next to like a tiny pink eraser right yes. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, we've got some people writing in already um, Beth writes in to say you know we've been minimalists for 20 plus years and the only material items I have grabbed when we've had to evacuate due to wildfires have been my dad's fly rod and his fountain pen, which I use daily, and our sourdough starter that my great-grandmother started in the late 1800s during the gold rush. Oh, my God. Come on. <laughs> that is like that is like a family pet that you've inherited, a bonsai yes. tree worth of... That's oh my crazy. God. Um, another uh, listener writes in to say, a homemade Christmas decoration I made with my grandma in 1993 is probably my most cherished possession. I and the that. other one is, I love this one, <laughs> and also my TI-89 calculator that my mom <laughs> bought me for AP Calculus in 2002 that I still use on an almost daily basis at work is a close second. Um, we love these stories. We want to hear more of them. What's an object or an item in your life that tells some a, a story about you or your history or your family? You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or you can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Go on our Discord. Share a picture with some of the folks there, too. We can take a look at it. Um, Naomi, let's bring you uh, into the conversation here. This book, What We Keep, is kind of like this show in book form in a sense, right? You went to all these people, famous and ordinary, uh, and said like, hey, what's an object that matters to you? Yeah, um, the basically we wanted not, you know, necessarily what would you grab in a fire, but what do you have that you've kept and that has the most resonance for you? And just makes you feel something to know that it's there. And the stories were amazing. They're amazing. We spoke to hundreds of people. And one of the most amazing things was not one person's object was about its monetary value. Hmm. There were so many just mundane household objects or, you know, found objects, old grandfather's seeds that had been sitting in the freezer for 25 years or a rock that was given to the head of the Museum of African-American History. Um, so that was some, and and. There was one bottle opener that had the most amazing story behind it. And again, just such a mundane object. Mm. What was the story? Um, so this was a man in about his 30s. The bottle opener, you know, sort of a wooden base You've seen it a million times, would never notice it. Well, it turned out it was a gift from his grandmother. And his grandmother, he was very close to growing up. And gradually, she, she was an accountant, you know, pulled back hair, suits, the whole image. And 
yet her house was always full of artists and musicians. And over time, he realized that the CPA thing was a cover. And for 30 years, she was the biggest importer of marijuana <laughs> from Mexico. She was in Northern plot twist. I didn't, the Plot twist. I knew that was coming and I still didn't know it was coming, you know? Wow. Yeah. It surprises me every time. <laughs> That is amazing. Um, Jessica Oreck, founder of the Office of Collecting and Design, which is in Las Vegas, for those of you who want to go visit this weekend. Um, How did your how did your office get started? Um, My office, in some ways, is sort of the opposite of these, Mm -hmm. you know, single objects that hold a single story and that. It's a collection of objects that are essentially meaningless. They are mm-hmm. things that are sort of sifted to the bottom of the junk drawer, um, you know, sort of things left behind by people. But what I'm interested in is sort of the nameless, faceless force of social change mm-hmm. that happens. And these things get left behind and they're yet still meaningful, even though they have no mm-hmm. individual attachment. So one of the things I think about is lost buttons. We collect lost buttons here. And almost every single visitor of the thousands of visitors we get every year has a memory of growing up and sorting buttons at their grandmother's house. (laughs) And this sort of very personal, you know, very intimate experience that is almost universal. I mean, I think for teenagers these days, it happens less. But anybody over 20, you know, that has a grandmother that grew up sewing, that's really a um, I, I love that sort of anonymous yet universal sharing of these memories that these objects hold. Oh. Um, so that's sort of how the space came together. Yeah. God, what a beautiful opener. Thank you so much. We're talking about the objects we keep. You know, not the fancy ones or the ones with real monetary value, but just the ones we tell our stories with. We're joined by Jessica Oreck, founder of the Office of Collecting and Design, Naomi Wax, co-author of What We Keep, a collection of stories about objects, and Liz Hernandez, who's embarking on a 12-month artistic project at SF State called The Office for the Study of the Ordinary to look at how ordinary objects reflect our lives. We're going to get to calls and many more comments as they come in about your objects and your stories. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the ordinary objects that we tell the stories 
of our lives with. Shows inspired by Liz Hernandez's new project at SF State called The Office for the Study of the Ordinary. It's a 12-month residency there to do storytelling around and art around objects. Also joined by Jessica Oreck, founder of the Office of Collecting and Design, which is a museum filled with her stuff in Las Vegas. She's also an artist and stop-motion animator. And we have Naomi Wax, co-author of What We Keep, a collection of stories about objects that have meaning and memory uh, for their owners. Um, Real quick, before we get to the phone lines, Jessica, Liz and I were just saying like, oh yeah, we totally did the button thing and the the buttons were stored in a blue cookie thing, (laughs) Um, like a Danish (laughs) cookie thing. Where did that come from? Who sold those cookies? Why has no one ever eaten one, but yet they're always (laughs) filled with buttons? That is a great question. The cookie tin is, yeah, it it goes along with the button with the button collection. I don't, I'm not sure. I don't have the answer to that, but I, I love that that is a part of it. You know, it's so funny. Producer Grace Wan, who also did the show, sometimes hosts forum as well. Um, she has been advocating to do a show about those cookie containers. Oh my god! For yes. literal, like, I mean, it's been like a year, and every time I'm kind of like, ah. That's a good, good. I mean, Liz. Yes, we should yes. do it. I think so because we, when we were talking about it, I was like, "Wait, is this like an international uh, <laughs> phenomena?" Because I, I mean, in Mexico, I've never had these Danish cookies, but I remember sorting through the buttons, through the threads with my grandma. What's going on? What is going on? And why did grandmas need so many <laughs> buttons? Nobody knows, you know? I don't think I've used a button once in my life. Um, all right, let's bring in Thomas in uh, Santa Rosa. Welcome, Thomas. Oh, uh, good morning. Um, well, so I have a very kind of quirky uh, uh, piece of uh, memorabilia. Um, so here's the story. I grew up uh, in the sixties. And, uh, so, you know, back then, uh, corporal punishment was a kind of a common thing. And so, um, just, uh, two years ago, my mother passed away mm-hmm. and <clears throat> it's kind of quirky, but I, um, I went to her house with my four brothers. There were five boys. Uh, and, we uh, were going through all the things, uh, packing things up. And then my brothers came to me with this paddle. It used to be one of those paddles that had a little rubber ball on the end of it and a uh, rubber band. Mm-hmm. And, they, and a real hardy one from like the 60s. And that was the paddle that my parents used to give us spankings. And so when they came to me, they came over and they said, here, you earned this. So supposedly I was the one who got the most spankings in that family. Now, the, it, the quirky thing about it is I brought it back to California from Chicago, and I still have it. And I look at it from time to time, and it is, it's got a history to it from my family, from yeah. the times where I grew up, where that was acceptable. Mm, yeah. And it, it, you know, it, so it, it... Does it also remind I, you of all the bad stuff you did that you got away with? <laughs> Is that, pardon me? Does it remind you of all the bad stuff you did that you got away with? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and it, it, what it really reminds me of is I got so hardened to it that after a while they'd come and give me a, you know, little spanking on, 
and I'd turn around and I wouldn't cry, and that was my power, is mm. that I would just look at them and not cry. <laughs> and, you know, they'd come near my brothers, and they'd be screaming bloody murder. <laughs> so, wow, Thomas, thanks for that's a, That's a fascinating and kind of complex example, Liz, to, to think through, because, yeah, I think one thing it points out <laughs> is, you know, sometimes we think of the memories that go with objects in kind of like a schlocky, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of nostalgic, you know, starry-eyed way. This is like a thing about a real relationship Mm -hmm. with your parents that's both, you know, complicated, but also interlaced with good feelings, it sounded like, from what Thomas was saying. Yeah, I mean, I I was thinking about um, how there's this big push to oh, the things that you should keep are the only ones that spark joy. Mm. And I kind of don't really agree with that because I think some of the objects that we tend to keep not only do that, but they also um, maybe remind us of lessons that we've had in the past Mm. or perhaps um, we're trying to keep someone's memory alive. Um, They just bring us back to a moment in our past, you know, like remembering Mm -hmm. is to uh, live again, to live something again. And I feel like some things that we might want to keep in mind might not just be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Life's not just joy. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. Right. <laughs> you know, Naomi um, Wax, there is a story in the book that Cheryl Strayed, now a famous author, now I'm, I'm sure a fabulously wealthy person, to tell, that she tells about being like a poor kid. Um, and it's a, a, a deeply affecting story. Um, you want to tell us about it? Sure. Yes, this is one of my favorite stories. Um, So her object is this incredibly gaudy seashell with a bright red pin cushion emerging from it. And she, her grandfather had brought it back from the Philippines when he was in the army and gave it to Cheryl's mother Cheryl grew up quite poor, and she wanted to bring this to show and tell. Mm-hmm. And But she wanted it to be just the seashell. She wanted people to think she found it. Mm-hmm. And along with that, it was this whole elaborate idea of who she wanted to be seen as, somebody who would be traveling in a foreign land and would find this amazing shell. And mm. she tried to cut away the pin cushion, which her mother put a stop to. But so flash forward years later, this seashell pin cushion sits on her shelf She had never told anyone the story, including her husband, who sees this object every day. But to her, it holds these strong memories of the shame around Mm -hmm. being poor, Mm -hmm. the idea of the life she wanted to Mm -hmm. have. And she can look at it and feel all those things Mm -hmm. and also have this sense of who she has become now and she seems to have become the person who she had dreamed of being as a child i mean i have it here i'm just gonna uh read a smidge of it because it's so good i've come to realize that it wasn't that i wanted to deceive but that i wanted to become 
The shell pincushion now sits on a shelf in my bedroom and looking at it, knowing I had those thoughts of who I wanted to be and what kind of life I wanted to live, and knowing that I've done it is the most beautiful, the truest thing. It's the core of who I am. The shell is like this present. It holds in its very being both the girl I was and the woman I became. I just love that sometimes um, these, you know, the almost the silliest objects can invite the deepest reflection. Jessica Oreck, I mean, as you, when you look at your objects, which, as you say, are the stuff that's filtered to the bottom of the junk drawer. Um, why is it, you think, that sometimes it's those most mundane and ordinary things that can, you know, that, that people use to tell these deepest stories of their life? Um, it's, that's, it's a complicated um, idea. I think part of it is because they're so invisible. They're they're so pervasive and they're so everywhere in some instances. I mean, the seashell, obviously not. That was a special object. But I think... Um, that they have a sort of what what something I call here at the museum is the the residue of attention. This idea that mm. each object holds, like, sort of has this. It holds all of the love that it's been afforded, all mm. of the shame that it's been placed into it. You know, mm. all of these things sort of converge into the object, and I think that they really um, there is a physical presence to that. Um, I think you can really, you can feel that when you hold an object in your hand, you can feel what comes before. And um, I don't know, I just, it's it's sort of a magical, a magical experience to get to share with someone. The museum here is very hands-on. You're supposed to hold all the objects mm. and people, people can really feel that. They can really, you know, some things they, they hold in their hand and they're like, this, I can tell that this was loved. Like, mm. I know that this feeling is part of it. Uh, so. I mean, sometimes that's a physical thing, right? Like with a with a stuffed animal, you know if a stuffed animal has been held because it kind of gets all squishy and weird, right? Yeah. But yes. sometimes it's just like, I love that phrase, quote, residue of attention, right? I mean, that's a beautiful thing because it, 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 it does seem like it can build around certain objects and give them kind of a, a sense of aura that we can detect as people. Um, we're talking about the objects we keep the way we tell stories with them. We're joined by Jessica Oreck, founder of the Office of Collecting and Design in Las Vegas. Also joined by Naomi Wax, co-author of What We Keep, a collection of stories about objects that have meaning and memory for their owners. And we're getting your objects of meaning and memory as we talk with Liz Hernandez, who is an artist embarking on a 12-month artistic project at SF State called The Office for the Study of of the ordinary. If you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org and get your creative writing prompt in this morning. You can go on the digital community uh, on Discord and uh, and share a photo and, and uh, the object there. Um, got a bunch of people writing in with beautiful things. Uh, get to a couple of them and then go back to the phones here. Um, Anne writes... Um, my father was a theoretical physicist who spent 30 years thinking deeply about developmental biology and patterns, and he collected shells and pine cones and fossils on his hikes. I just love these pieces of beauty in nature. Christine writes, one of my most cherished objects that I use nearly every day is a wooden spoon that belonged to my mother. It's not an objet d'art per se, I hope I said that right, but it must be about 78 years old, older than me by some three years. It's smooth and warm, and it always feels to me that a bit of my mother's spirit is within it, parenthetically, residue of attention. Um, by the way, in oral storytelling circles, objects are used as story seeds 
as tools for exploring for stories, both cherished objects and seemingly ordinary objects can be very effectively used for story development. Um, Liz Hernandez, are you, how are you thinking about gathering up the SF State community around these objects? Are you going to use them in, as sort of seeds, as it's put here, story seeds or art seeds? Yeah, I think that's one of the ways that I will be engaging with the um, with the SF State community. Um, so I think you know multiple ways. First, by the uh, by founding this office um, and giving myself the title of researcher, <laughs> <laughs> I think I come into this uh, project with almost like open this openness to see what happens. It's mm-hmm. an experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never done something like this. Um, but I think that we will be looking at these objects, our studies, um, sorry, our objects of study. Mm-hmm. And from there, we will allow them to tell us what is the story that needs to be told mm. um, or if we need to make something based on them. So that's one of the other aspects of the office. We, um, the School of Art and I will work on these um, creation of workshops where we will make objects based on either places, um, objects, everyday things, and then we will create an archive based on them. So mm. we're making this fictitious artifacts, mm-hmm. but that they will be telling stories, and we will be uh, collaborating with other people in the in the university, doing creative writing, like mm. what you what just happened here <laughs> in Discord, and what people calling in. Yeah, that's so, so interesting. Let's uh, bring in Michael in Hercules. Welcome, Michael. Good morning. Um, things I've kept are some uh, many tools that I grew up with uh, that belonged to my father. And uh, he was a depression baby. He saved and fixed everything. I'm 72, so he'd be 102 now. <laughs> well, in the 60s, uh, 64, we built a house out here in the boondocks, uh, Rodeo, Hercules area, just 35 miles from San Francisco, mm-hmm. but there were cows and everything out here. So um, I've kept those tools, and we built the family house. Since then, I built another house myself using those tools. So um, I was able to teach my daughter how to use them, and um, I still have them now. And um, when What's I'm like one you really love, day, Michael? Uh, Is there one single tool you really love, like your favorite for the shape or just how, how it's played a role in your life? Good point. So many of those were made in America back then, and uh, I have a, a saw and a hammer. Mm. We used to build tree forts and everything. I'd leave them out overnight. I'd really catch hell. Reminded me of your previous caller with the wooden paddle. But um, I still use them. I get them sharpened mm. and um, have a problem. I think, now how would the old man fix this? <laughs> so. Yeah. The uh, the show really jogs some memories. I bought the family house now, and uh, it's like a museum for their family wow. siblings. We got medals from swimming and trophies from baseball, and uh, I'm stuck with holding this museum <laughs> for my siblings. But uh, and your previous caller, kitchen tools, yeah. uh, it's really neat. Yeah. And then, You've had shows on getting rid of clutter, so I'm really caught in the middle. <laughs> I think uh, we're just trying to give everyone permission to keep things that even spark other feelings aside from joy. You know, that's, that's part of the show for sure. Um, we've got some other um, great comments rolling in. Wow. 
Uh, Norma writes, I cherish my mother's uh, sewing shears. Wiss inlaid scissors plus one of her six-inch rulers. She was a professional seamstress for 45 years. She had small hands and wrapped some fabric around the scissor handles, which looked like circa 1940s, 50s, and it's still there today, the fabric. In the 1950s, she organized 13 shops in SF Chinatown into the International Ladies' Garment Union, ensuring fair wages and safe working conditions for these workers. These objects remind me of her artistry and fortitude, and I still use them today. Nancy writes, in about 1960, my father bought for my birthday an early transistor radio. It was a Toshiba, about three by five inches in its original leatherette case. I used to take it with me to the neighborhood swimming pool in our town of Brentwood, Missouri. Every time I run across it in our current house, I wonder why I have it. Listening to your show today, I understand it's mine and it connects me to an earlier time. I, you know, Liz, one of the things that, um, I'm wondering is whether people who are growing up with the objects of today, kind of a a more plasticky throwaway kind of objects, will still maintain this same relationship? Or if it was something about a particular era of object making, what do you think? Oof, that's a really good question. Mm. You know, I think maybe for us right now, just plastic seems so like whatever, but you don't know like the the things that we collect now and cherish where things of the past but the past was the present for these people so <laughs> right. i am sure someone will be collecting some plastic junk yeah. and pokemon we'll yeah oh my god <laughs> i mean i feel like i grew up with that and now i see them as relics at this point they're vintage i think yeah. um but yeah i think it's for me the material is really a big thing um how i curate the things that i like keep in my house mm-hmm. um but i don't think it's um it's just exclusive of that i think it's more about this relationship to someone like the more calls come in and we read the comments i just keep thinking about how these objects really relate us to people outside of ourselves and mm. that's really the main thing you know yeah why cool. we keep them yeah they're this connective tissue between lives that we can like pull up you know it's amazing we are talking about the ways we use objects to tell our stories the objects we keep around you know we're joined by liz hernandez an artist in oakland embarking on a 12-month artistic project at sf state called the office for the study of the ordinary also joined by jessica Oreck, founder of the office of collecting and design and naomi wax co-author of what we keep a collection of stories about objects that have meaning and memory for their owners We're going to get to a bunch more of the comments that have come in. We're going to get to more calls. The number is 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Fun show this morning. Talking about the objects that we keep and use to tell the stories of our lives. We're joined by Naomi Wax, co-author of What We Keep, a collection of stories about objects that have meaning and memory for their owners. Jessica Orrick, who's the founder of the Office of Collecting and Design, which is in Las Vegas. She's an artist and stop-motion animator whose collection of objects form the foundation of that museum. And we're also joined by Liz Hernandez, an artist here in the Bay Area, Working on a new project at SF State called The Office for the Study of the Ordinary. Um, we have a ton of comments coming up, which I'm going to get to in just one second. But I did want to um, ask you, Jessica, if you see something different about, you know, some people are writing in with like collections of things, you know, um, like the woman whose dad was a theoretical physicist and she has like this kind of whole collection of stuff versus like a single object. Do you see any difference between sort of keeping a collection and keeping just just one thing? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, I mean, I think they're both value and they both point to a certain um, sort of, in my view, character trait, this character trait of being a collector, um, because it really does seem like either you collect a single object, something that means something to you or a whole collection, or you don't get it at all. And you don't understand why anybody collects anything. There's like, there's no in between. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there's something about a collection, especially with objects like we have here at the museum, which are essentially valueless, um, that when you bring them together and 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 uh, display them in mass, there's a sort of reframing, a sort of shifting of perspective about um, their value hmm. that I think you can't get from a single object. Yes, you know, a, a a lovely rock is a lovely rock, but if you have- But how about a hundred rocks, lovely rocks? <laughs> or, but how about a hundred not so lovely rocks, mm. but displayed in a way mm. that makes you look at them and think, wow, I never would have picked up that rock, but now I see it in a way that I never would have seen it when it was lying on the ground. There's a way that allows you to reframe these, you know, these ordinary objects so that you can see them again as if for the first time mm. or- as if for the hundredth time, but with with purpose and with intention, that I think is is a really valuable uh, a really valuable way to look at the world, a really valuable way to mm. appreciate the things that have sort of become invisible because of their their you ubiquity know, and yeah ubiquity yeah. Yeah, so, that's so uh, that's so interesting. You know, when my when my ten uh, year old was a really little kid, they were a big collector of random junk in the neighborhood, and one thing that they liked to collect uh, were these fallen kind of um, halfway rotting quinces. And one time they brought like ten of them back to our house, or maybe it was even twenty, and just arranged them in a little grid. I guess we kind of did it together. And then you looked at it, and you were like, suddenly it was like the most beautiful thing in the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it was really a collection of like halfway rotting fruit. So I take your point. I take your point. Um, Let's bring in uh, Don in Menlo Park. Hi, good morning. This is a great show. Um, I wanted to share that I kept my lovies from when I was a baby slash toddler. They are three, um, a purple, a pink, and a yellow, a pink, uh, blue, and a yellow, sorry, fabric, uh, 
bunny puppet thing from Fisher Price <laughs> from the early 80s slash 70s. But um, the pink one was my most favorite, and it is threadbare. My mom repaired it, um, and uh, it is a hot mess, but I love it. And what I did is I have two little girls, and I gave the blue one and the yellow one to my little girls, and they love it. They love their little, we call them Hossies, um, they're little Hossies, and um, my older one asks to see Pink Hossie, and I tell her it's delicate, and, you know, it's had to go see the doctor because it's a hot mess. Um, oh, man, what I if you had really, a third kid, Don? Would you have given the third kid I the Pink Hossie? I, well, I think that, um, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> I think <laughs> like, yeah. was the, uh, I could only have two kids. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was the it. limit on life. You'd have had to get, like, the third kid, one of those, like, life-size giraffes to make up for it, you know? <laughs> exactly. But I, I love that we have this shared kind of love. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I've given them other loveys to, to, to you know, carry around that as toddlers and babies do but they don't they consistently go mm-hmm. for the hossie and i did not force it on them so i mean yes. fisher price doesn't make this anymore and they could totally make money on this because this is it's a really lovely <laughs> little thing for babies and i i love that my babies love the ones that i had and yes uh you got to send in a pic first of all and you know from from your lips to the fisher price executive's ears more fabric bunny puppet things called hossies um <laughs> Uh, let's bring in Doug in San Rafael. Welcome, Doug. Hi there. Thank you so much for the show. This is really entertaining. Um, my object that I have is um, it's an old cigar box mm. from my grandfather, and it has this um, uh, this inlay on the cover from uh, you know from like the old cartog- you know, cartography of this old version of the world. But um, I don't smoke cigars, but uh, so I just kind of threw things in there that I thought were worldly, including my passport. And over time, the passport acquired the smell. Of oh, the that's box. so good. And, any, and anything else that I put in there kind of acquired that smell. So I've, I've had some interesting eyebrows raised when like going through um, customs when they kind of open up the passport, and they're like, whoa, what's that smell? I'm like, oh, that's my grandfather's cigar. That's essence of grandfather. That's what that is right there. That's the grandfather, yeah. That's oh, man. I, I also love that, too. That line, I threw things in there that I thought were worldly. I mean, who didn't have that box? You know what I mean? Ah, oh, so good. Doug, thank you so much for that uh, uh, for that memory. Um, we got a we got a ton uh, of other comments. Um, let me get to a, a few of them, and then uh, Naomi, maybe you can reflect uh, if these things that are showing up here um, are reflective of kind of the the themes that showed up in in the book. Um, Ingrid writes: When my Oma grandmother died in 2012, I inherited her wooden clothespins. What I love about these objects is that they're tactile. They're made of hardwood and stainless steel. Almost impossible to find something similar today that has the same resistance and endurance of these 40-year-old clothespins. They slow me down in a world of parenting and full-time work and being always connected all the time that moves so fast. And in the everyday work of line drying laundry. I feel the presence of my Oma and I'm grateful for the opportunity to take it one article of clothing at a time. Becky writes, when I was seven, around 1955, I was living in Topeka, Kansas. While riding my bicycle one warm day, I spotted a sparkly rock half buried in dirt. I stopped, dug up the treasure, and I still have it in its crevices, traces of dirt 
are still visible. Susie writes, as the keeper of the Scottish shortbread and gingerbread in my family, going all the way back to Goan clan ladies, I have held on to this blender from my mum and fixed it in my, quote, Susie way. People make fun of me for not replacing it. I'll use it until it doesn't work anymore and may try to fix it anyway. Maybe not with duct tape. I feel I have my mum with me when I bake each Christmas time, bringing back black treacle-flavored shortbread to my family and friends. Um... Uh, Naomi, what do you think? Compare, contrast, you know, our, our folks who've been writing in versus people who, um, you know, you had a chance to kind of sift and, um, uh, and, and edit. Um, yeah, there's so much overlap. And I mean, what really stands out to me is how strongly these objects are connected to, the stories that they hold, whether it's a time in the past that they represent or a relationship with someone who has passed or a significant time in a person's life, they really, I mean, the impetus for this project for us was this realization as you know, everything from wildfires to refugees to having all your belongings in the cloud. And of course, the Marie Kondo mm-hmm. imperative to throw things away. And here these objects hold not just their stories, but this essence of mm-hmm. who we are, who we love, who we have loved, what we've done. And so the importance of taking them out once in a while Mm. and really thinking about why do I have this? What does this mean to me? What does it evoke Mm. is such a strong experience. And it's also something that is so important to share These, you know, people in our lives every day Mm -hmm. don't know these stories. And so it's something that really, you know, for us talking even to friends about their objects Mm. opened up whole new areas of awareness of, you know, people really close to us in their lives, how they think, what they value, what they remember. There's also something about the way that you can almost kind of seal a memory up in an object too. You know, you can kind of be like, you know what? And uh, to go back to the Cheryl Strait example, it's kind of like, here's all this childhood shame that I have felt over the years. I'm just going to like put this in that thing and then I can take out that shame. But it almost feels like very, very uh, therapeutic. Here's a, a slightly different direction here via John. Um, John writes, my wife, Erlinda, died six years ago after us being together for 35 years. I look at all the objects around me that stimulate wonderful love and memories and experiences we had together. But what do I do with these things when I die? Our children do not have the deep appreciation of the meaningful nature that I, uh, and meaningful nature that I have for these. Liz, I'm coming to you on this in part because I know that, you know, some of your other work ended up kind of connecting with, uh, it was your aunt, right? Um, And, in that work, you kind of brought her photos and life kind of back in a way that maybe even her, you know, the other people in your family did not. Like maybe there is someone in your life, John, is what I'm saying. Liz, do you want to describe a little bit of that? Yeah, well, that example is a little bit tricky because mm. 
she didn't exist. I made her up. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was an exercise on um, a totally different uh, topic, which is just this multiple multiple versions of ourselves. And it was a way to have a conversation with another um, version of myself. But, um, yes, it is correct. In the exhibition, there was an archive of... Mm-hmm. Now you know fictitious um, objects left behind, and it's because I am very interested in um, the objects that we leave mm. after we pass, and how mm. that is almost like a self-portrait that we kind of like leave. And I was interested in seeing what would the story be um, if someone suddenly found these yeah, objects, these and things. you know, I I wish I had like a a very um, clear conclusion to that, but. After creating that body of work, I was just left wondering. Yeah. I was like, I don't know what happens. And yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. Jessica, I mean, how about you? I mean, as someone who is a collector who goes presumably to estate sales and places where, you know, all the stuff of a life is gathered and then you pick out like four things, you know, like how do you end up thinking about about that, you know, about like the the, the objects you've selected across the, the vastness of a life of stuff? I, I'm wow, that is such a complicated question. I I mean, for me, I have very specific rules about what I bring into the museum. You know, does it have a positive residue of attention? Is it small? Will it go with other collections, et cetera? But I think, you know, one of the one of the joys of going to estate sales for me is that I love to try to piece together the life that these people led. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember going to an estate sale once where the the woman was clearly had been an artist and they had traveled back and forth to Japan a lot. You could tell their suitcases were incredibly worn and they had playing card decks from every different airline. And they had, um, you know, I, in his office, I opened the drawers and he had flight maps from, from, you know, all these different things. And I finally ended up finding a business card of his tucked in the back of one of the drawers. And he was a pilot for Japan Airlines. And, you know, just the sort of those remnants that come through of this life, I'd, even if they aren't, you know, even if they aren't put into an archive and appreciated by the world, I think that there's a place for those. Mm. I think there's an appreciation for that, that life. And even if it's, even if it's just people at an estate sale mm-hmm. appreciating the taste and the curation that this person has had throughout their life, I think that's still valuable. I mean, I think there's a there's a connection to strangers that we can only get by looking at their stuff, mm-hmm. and I um, I still think of it as very positive. Oh. Um, got got to get to more of these comments. They're so beautiful. Uh, Sylvia writes. One of my most treasured possessions is a recipe card for albondigas, you know, a Mexican meatball, in my mom's beautiful handwriting. I found the card in a drawer in 2020 at the height of lockdown. My mom passed in 2019. Pretty sure I broke down in tears when I found it, and the card is now proudly displayed in a clear frame in my kitchen, and I refer to it any time I make albondigas. Someday, they'll taste as good as hers. Ian writes, the objects I have cherished for decades are party flyers from the early 2000s. As I traveled around Paris, London, and Barcelona, I attended countless parties at clubs and underground warehouse spaces. I still enjoy and appreciate the early 2000s 
era of, quote, futuristic digital design. And I love listening to all those classic jungle and drum and bass artists, uh, the flyers advertised on vinyl. Stuart writes, I'm saving my mother's locked childhood diary, which I only discovered when cleaning out her home after she died. I keep it in a place of honor. And to me, it represents the possibility and promise of continuing to get to know my loved ones better, even after they've died. Kathy writes, I've kept a Welch's grape jelly glass jar that my Italian grandmother used as a measuring cup. She didn't have ordinary measuring cups, as well as a tiny empty bottle of authentic anisone oil that she used anisone oil that she used to bake her beloved biscotti. Another listener writes, in my freezer is a sandwich wrapped in saran wrap in a diagonal plastic box. My mother was in hospice, and staff brought her some food to eat. She ate the jello and some fruit, told me, You look hungry. Take this sandwich. It's the last meal my mother served me, still in my freezer. And Tom writes, At a birthday party a number of years ago, I didn't want gifts. But instead, I hosted a, quote, memory exchange, where guests were encouraged to find something in their home that invokes a good memory. They were instructed to wrap the item in brown, plain brown paper with a note telling the story of the memory. Everyone who brought a memorable object received one from another guest, and one by one, the packages were opened and the story was told. The variety of items was remarkable, the stories often heartwarming, and everyone left the party with a closer connection to another guest. Good Lord, you people. This is so, these are amazing this morning. Um, thank you so much for write, writing in with all of them. Listen, Ernest, I feel like there's there's something in that last one that maybe is for the office. Absolutely. You know, at SF Stage, it feels that way. Um, we have been talking about the objects that we keep, the ones, you know, that don't have real monetary value, but that mean something to us and they're how we tell our lives. We have been joined by Naomi Wax, co-author of What We Keep, a collection of stories about objects that have meaning and memory for their owners. Thanks for joining us, Naomi. Thank you so much. It's been great. So fun. Thank you. Um, we've also been joined by Jessica Oric, founder of the Office of Collecting and Design in Los Angeles, an artist and stop motion animator. Thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. Thank you for having me. And thank you to all the listeners that wrote in and called in. This was, I teared up so many times. I this know. So beautiful. beautiful. Good so God. Beautiful. It's Friday, everyone. Um, we've also been joined here in the studio by the artist who inspired the show, Liz Hernandez. <laughs> She's got a new project at SF State, which you can get involved with. It's called The Office for the Study of the Ordinary. Thanks for joining us, Liz. Thank you so much, Alex. Let's go stamp some stuff. Yes. <laughs> the 9 o'clock hour of form is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Dan Zoll. Our intern is Emiko Oda, Marlena jackson Rotondo, Marnette Federis, and Jennifer Ng are our engagement producers. Francesca Fenzi is our digital community producer. Judy Campbell's lead producer, Danny Bringer, and Christopher Beal, who put this song on for me, are our engineers. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Gotta go out to this song. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.